This event is presented by Methodist Healthcare Ministries. Um, I'm going to introduce uh, Chris Cabrera first. He is uh, a Border Patrol agent, and he uh, spent the last four, he spent uh, four years as a paratrooper in the U.S. Army before joining the Border Patrol in 2001. He has spent his entire career right here in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, he is deputy spokesman for the National Border Patrol Council and the local 3307 right here in the RGV. He's very passionate and outspoken about border security and immigration. Chris, you want to come up here and, uh, and take a seat? I'm also ex very excited to have Dr. Dr. Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, no relation to Chris. She is associate professor in the Department of Public Affairs and Security Studies at the University of Texas, RGV formerly known as UT Brownfield, I believe. Her areas of expertise are uh, Mexico-U.S. relations, energy, border security, immigration, and organized crime. That about covers it. She can throw a rock into the Rio Grande from her apartment, and I know this because we interviewed her at her apartment, and it's pretty cool. So you want to come on up? Those are the guys coming around the end. 
um, because we're not doing enough to secure this border, even though we have what it takes to secure it. I want to ask you, what do you base that 40% figure on? Because one of the things that we keep looking at are apprehension figures. Um, and, of course, apprehension figures tell you who got caught. They don't tell you who got away. So what do you base that 40% figure on? I base that 40% figure on um, our agents interviewed. Uh, there are wide areas that no one is covering. Um, there's times where they won't assign people out into these, these busy areas. And I asked our chief, our former chief, uh, Chief Fisher, one time in front of everybody. I said, Chief, we have areas that are wide open, that nobody's covering. What are we going to do about that? I said, our, our station, our, our, our sector chief is telling us we're going to bleed heavily on our flanks, which we are. If you're the chief of the Border Patrol, what are we going to do about these 20, 30 miles that are wide open just at one station? And his actual response, and I couldn't make this up if I tried, is if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there, it doesn't make a sound. And his mentality was put the blinders on. If we don't see it, it doesn't happen. And unfortunately, it that's the mentality of the higher-ups in the patrol. It's about, let's get, when, when people come down to, to see our area, they want to give them the dog and pony show, show them how much we have. When, if people would come out and see what we're lacking, then we could get the resources to fix it, but nobody wants to be lacking on their watch. Okay, well, if you had seen the movie, and maybe some of you have, uh, one of the things that we did sort of get into or that we tried to bring out is you talked about bad guys good guys and bad guys. Um, we, we had a little bit of both. In, in one instance, um, we, we had a situation where um, I would, came face-to-face, -face basically, with a smuggler, um, and I also interviewed a landowner, and he told me um, that basically, at times, he felt like he didn't even own his property. So, um, Professor, what I want to ask you is, um, do, you, do you see this phenomenon of good people mixed with bad people, um, and is, is that sort of a problem? Because you, know, you do see uh, very uh, heartbreaking cases. We, I, I interviewed a, a, a little girl named Alejandra, and she told me that the smuggler had left her in a boat and pushed her off, and then she made the trip herself, and um, she seemed like a, a, a very nice kid, and then you see them mixed in with, with, with some of these smugglers. Um, Talk about what you've seen. You've spent a lot of time recently. You just got back, you told me, from the, from Piedras and from other places along the border. I think, Jane, that we had this conversation when we were at my place. And my, my, my answer at that time, and I believe that, is most of the people who are coming to the United States are coming here to work, not to commit crimes. And that is, is a reality. What, what's just happening now is like this perception that the people who are deported are, you know, who have criminal records and they want to return because they have had a life and they want to return to the United States. I wouldn't say that everybody who tries to cross the border or the majority of them are smugglers or are criminals or are deported because they have committed a crime. There is a portion of them. However, uh, the media, some politicians, some media outlets, of course, not the Texas Tribune, but other, other, media, I mean, other media, politicians, it's, it's very profitable, uh, politically speaking, to, to talk about that and to spend resources on the border. It generates economies, you know, bringing more people to generate like aggregate demand, uh, government spending, and, and that's profitable for some politicians.
I do believe, and this is what I have seen, these people come from their countries. We were there. You were in Salvador. I was in Salvador. I was in Honduras. I was in Guatemala. And when I was there, I realized that the situation for these people is complicated. They, 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 are, they are living a very uh, difficult life, economically speaking, and with regards to security. The insecurity in those places is tremendous because of the gangs. And they, they make this journey, and they know when they cross the border, somebody's going to give them a job. And I have talked to several people who have families, who have, uh, who have you know, friends and people that aren't being able to get to make it here, and they are provided with a job. So I would say, in my experience, and I have interviewed 350 people, something like that, in my journey, from the, the countries of the Northern Triangle to Tamaulipas and, and Coahuila, I would, I would say that the majority of the people who are trying to get to the other side, and the ones who make it, are not criminals. Most of them come to work, and there is somebody in this country that are giving them jobs, not paying them lower salaries, and, and also are not paying uh, benefits, uh, what is legal. So the illegality comes from two sides. Well, I think you put your finger on a, a big policy issue, and I, I want to ask Chris the same question, but I'm going to ask you first, and that is, how do you come up with a policy that separates the good from the bad, that is able to somehow dis, uh, to make the distinction between, you know, the gangbanger that's going to come across and MS-13? I mean, we saw some of those in El Salvador, and I tell you, it's pretty scary. We did a ride-along with the federal, uh, with the well, they don't have local police there, it was the PNC, um, and we went through a really uh, bad neighborhood, and, um, you know, there's some of those people that get mixed in. So how do you draft a policy, or how do you come up with a policy that's able to keep out the bad guys and, and you know, give a handout or, or give, give a, uh, a welcoming uh, hand to the people who really deserve it and need it? It's, a, it's an excellent question. It's an excellent question. And that has to do with, with other policies. First, I mean, immigration reform. With immigration reform, with a comprehensive immigration reform, the government of the United States will have more control uh, on, on the people here in the United States. On the other hand, um, we have to, to think about what your question was. How many of them are bad guys? And the deportation policies of this administration in particular are deporting people on the border. And I have seen that in Nuevo Laredo, in Tierras Negras, in Reynosa, in Matamoros. I think that, that this, is, this is problematic because these people are, are, are having certain conversations with, with, the, with the drug cartels. That, and, they are very, and there might be some corruption taking place in the United States. So I think the best policies should be involving two, well, five countries here. I, and I think that we have all to recognize that we have many issues. If on the Mexican side of the border, uh, the corruption is tremendous. And the presence of organized crime controls the border. I would say the, the, the parts that I, that, I, that I know, from, from Ciudad Cunha to, to Matamoros. And I have seen that each part of this, of this, of this border is controlled by a group. So if you want to enter, uh, you, you, you have to pay a fee. Why in the United States and Mexico, the United States and Mexico should know who these people are? And there must, might be some corruption on both sides. I think that the policies need to be comprehensive. And also, there's one part that is very important. I mean, how to say? I mean, how to how to how, how to know who's the bad guy? How to know who's the good guy? I think we need to be focused on 
the bad people. And also, there must be policies that recognize that this is a U.S. problem and also penalize the people who are hired. If you don't want to have this loss, if you don't want to have so many people, let's try on the, on the, on the demand side. Why on the supply side only? I mean, this is much more complex than just secure the border and, and, and hire more uh, border patrol agents, put more technology. It is something that has to do with the economy of the countries, with problems that have been supported by, by other nations, what happened in, in Central America uh, during the Cold War time, also has a lot of, of, of connection with what's happening now. And we need to recognize our responsibility, the, the countries of the North Triangle, the con I mean Mexico and the United States, because we all have a in this and we all need to act here. So it's very complicated. So I want to put the, 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 the same and question to you, but also throw in the, the fact that, you know, when we were there, one of the things that um, uh, really you're reminded of is that when these unaccompanied minors come across, they're not hiding from the Border Patrol. They're not even in the custody of the Border Patrol. They're really in the custody of Health and Human Services, and you guys have to spend a lot of time in the field processing them. And, and I, I saw that... You, you, there's a cat and mouse game that goes on where a load of unaccompanied minors will go in over here and then something will be happening over there and you'll hear the radio you know, crackling and going crazy. You know what I'm talking about. Um, what do you do about that? How, how can you make sure that you're, you're stopping the gangbangers, the MS-13 guys, uh, at the same time that uh, you know, some people are seeking asylum and um, you know, really vulnerable people? You know, the interesting part about these, these children coming across is these people have every intention of going through the ports of entry. By them going through the ports of entry, there is no crime of illegal entry. It's just a, a claim for asylum. However, when they get into the border region, the cartels tell them, you're not crossing that bridge. You're crossing where we tell you, when we tell you, in order to tie up our agents. And so our agents are, are, are struggling with 50... 60, 80, at one point, a couple years ago, 292 people turning themselves in at one time. So it takes all of our resources away from the patrol aspect, and the guys that are the, the bad apples, those are the ones getting in. And and not everyone crossing it is a bad guy coming in, but it just takes that one. Um, and it, it's hard to create a policy when you can't stop the flow. It's like if your sink was overflowing, are you going to start mopping first, or are you going to turn off the water? You have to stop that flow first and then figure out what's wrong and fix it. So until we can fix this this open border, and it is an open border, until we can fix this, more people are going to make this journey, make this trip. And, and what we're seeing is a, a two-year-old, four-year-old child left alone in the, in the woods um, to fend for themselves. We had a nine-year-old boy die of a heat stroke. Um, it, it's, it's terrible. We have girls 10, 12, 15 years old with a Plan B pill in their, in their, in their bags girls that get put on birth control by their parents before they make this trip. And it's, it's a terrible, terrible thing that anyone, uh, man, woman, or child, would have to face. But it, until we get serious about stopping this, we're encouraging more people to come in. And it's like the supply and demand. We're, we're, we're smacking the, the immigrants on the hand and saying, don't do this. But then there's a reward for them. They're getting um, status in the country to stay, and they're getting given a chance to work. So, so who wouldn't? You know, and, and until we fix this, until we get serious about border security, 
we're going to continue, and more kids are going to get put at risk. More criminal aliens are going to come into the country. And granted, it's not just criminals that are coming into the country. There's there's a, a ton of people coming in. Not everybody has you know ill intentions, but some do. And when we have those people coming into our communities, it's a bad thing. And the beauty of being down here on the, on the in the Rio Grande is this stuff is not coming into our communities. It's passing through. It's like a parade. We're on the sidelines watching a parade go by. These MS-13s, they're going to Virginia, Maryland, D.C. That's where they're concentrated at. Um, they're, they're not staying in this area. It's affecting the rest of the country. Until the rest of the country wakes up and sees that, it, it, it's it's everywhere. We're, we're never going to beat it. And me personally, I've been in 15 years. As long as I've been in, we've had 12 million illegals in the United States. I, I don't understand that. Number. I mean... It's like not a single one has come or left since I've been here, but we see 700 a day just in my station alone, and it's out of control. Well, I, I think there's at least one uh, explanation for, for part of that is that uh, a lot of Mexicans have been returning to Mexico. Um, I'd, I'd like you to talk about that, um, Professor, because you've studied this. What What's happening with, with Mexican immigrants? and with Because if, if you look at, at some of the numbers, um, a lot of the, they're just not near as many, they're not as near, near as many apprehensions. Again, we did talk about the fact that it's not necessarily a one-to-one -one thing. We can't look at apprehensions and know for sure what's happening in terms of who's getting through. Um, but what's happening in Mexico in terms of why, why people are going back? That's a very interesting question that shows the complexities of all this, uh, I mean, of, of, of this phenomenon. Um, Mexico, I mean, the, the, the reason why the number has stayed the same. We have many deported people. That has to do with the policy of the United States. On the other hand, actors uh, and migrants uh, also make their calculations based on that cost-benefit analysis. Uh, and to some extent, and that's that's very interesting because you work in the field. The border patrol agents work in the field, and they, they see this situation out of control. However, the apprehensions all along the border, except from this, this part, which has to do with map, mapping and, and, and organized crime. Uh, have, have been going For Mexicans, if they calculate um, their cost and benefit of crossing, I mean, the costs have gone up enormously. And also with regards to security, they have more to lose than Central America. Because in Central America, the situation is so complicated with regards to, I mean, in, in terms of economic and economically speaking, and in terms of security. They, they have nothing to lose, and they keep coming no matter what, and they encountered organized crime. However, the Mexican economy, I'm not saying that has improved because that's, that's not, I mean, the figures of GDP, the, the GDP growth uh, figures, GDP per capita rates don't show, uh, like, a, a, like the Mexican president, the former Mexican president said that when, when the Pew Hispanic Center started to say that there was a net, a zero, uh, like, uh, zero percent, like, taking into account the people who are, who are returned and the people who come at a, a, a zero rate in terms of Mexicans. Uh, he said that it was because the Mexican economy has been, uh, you know, improving a lot. That's not that's not what it is. But they have their families, they have their connection. And the cost is so big to pay the coyote, to pay the person at the border, to be murdered, to be abused um, uh, by, by all these bad guys that stay in Mexico, most of them. Mexico has re a real security problem uh, having to do with immigration from Central America. So they, they decide to stay in It's much more complicated because of the United States policy. It, they have been successful. 
And let's say, I mean, and this is, this is something we need to recognize. The United States have spent so many resources in the past few days continuing arguing that the border is insecure. However, they have been able to lower the amount of people from Mexico across the border. They have been able to do their job. And we need to, I mean, we, we, we need to recognize that. The apprehensions, most, most part of the, of the United States-Mexico border have, have increased. Um, and that's, that's a matter of fact, using those numbers. Thank you. I'm, I'm not sure if you agree with that or not, given what you first said. I mean, do you feel like, I, I, in my interviews with people, I have asked people, is it getting harder? And, they, and to almost every single one of them says, yes, it's harder now than it was even just a few years ago to get to the United States. Now, obviously, again, if you're an un unaccompanied minor, the rules are different. But do you feel like it's gotten harder to cross the border recently? Well, you know, we have a, a better infrastructure than we did years ago. Um, 2005, 2006, we had this mad rush of uh, Brazilians, Hondurans, uh, Central Americans coming over. And it, it was pretty much along the same things. And, and most of our apprehensions were OTMs, other than Mexicans. Um, and what we saw is, is the Mexican numbers dropped. And it wasn't necessarily the fact that they weren't coming. It is that these others were turning themselves in. And when the Mexicans were coming across, they were running. And uh, so I have 30 people staying here. And then I got 15 people running. Well, i got to stick with these guys. And they're gone. Um, then we had the expedited removal process came in where it was, uh, you come in, you're here for two or three days, and then you're back in your home country. And then we started seeing the Mexican numbers come in. Um, it, it's just one of these things where we see just this human nature, you know, what's it saying, the, the bird, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And, and that's what we have. We have so much traffic. We have so much going on. These, we, we can't even, we don't even have enough border patrol agents now that these people can turn themselves into. They're going to constables. They're going to uh, people have, that, that clean the park. They're turning themselves into anybody with any type of uniform. Anybody that's out there, they'll turn themselves into. Um, and granted, I'm sure there, there may be less coming over, but by no means has it stopped. At, at no means is it, is it down to a triple. There, there's still a, a large number, in my opinion, and from what my guys on, on the border tell us, that, that they're coming across. It's just that they have more to lose. In way back when, when we were deporting everybody, we would have, say, a Central American claim to be a Mexican. That way, when they got sent back, they would just get sent back to Mexico, and they could try again that same day. Um, now, what we have is we have Mexicans pretending to be a Central American <laughs> so that they can stay in the country. And we've seen it. We see it time and time again. Whatever is most beneficial, and it's, you know, it, you know we even see them with, with fake, fake IDs coming in and saying, hey, you know, I'm Hungarian. We used to have to break people to not be a Mexican. Now we have to break people to be Mexican. It's just it's a crazy tournament. Can, can you talk a little bit about, because um, I had a Border Patrol agent explain this to me, like nice people and, and things like that, little things that you can ask that where the language is different. And how, what are some of the ways that you're able to tell that someone is Central American versus uh, Mexican? Well, you know, I think anybody that's, you know, been along this part of the border, they know that, you know, there's words that are, you know, Spanglish-type words, and then there's actual true Mexican type Spanish and then you have different dialects throughout Mexico whether it's a, a Mexico City or, or you know wherever the case is um, and then all the way into Central America even Cuba Puerto Rico there, there's different words different dialects different uh, slang words so our, our agents are constantly evolving with different things that they can use you know the different the difference between how you say uh, a straw in, in 
Mexican dialect as opposed to Honduran. You know, you know it's just there, there's a lot of different words. Like tomal is some guys don't know what that is. Um, further down into the, the further south they go. And there, there's just a lot of different different ways, different tools that they use to, to get them. Actually, one of the biggest ones to, I guess in Mexico, from what I understand, is these guys have to learn the, the national anthem in school. So we would have these guys stand up and sing the national anthem. And the ones that couldn't sing it, we had to put a little more attention on them. In um, terms of, 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 you know, when, when I was in Central America, I found, uh, you know, a lot of people in, in who were really desperate to get here. Can you talk a little bit, in just a couple of minutes, we're going to um, have the results of our quiz, but just very quickly, if you could talk about, um, you know, the fact that a lot of them are staying in Mexico. We, I found that in there, and they're so desperate to leave Central America, when they get to Mexico, um, they're, they're, they, in a lot of cases, they stay there. And we also found that in, in Mexico, there's some of the same type of blowback that you've seen here in the United States where they're complaining about all the Central Americans that are coming. Definitely, okay, you described it very well, and that's true, and, and that reinforces my, my, my past comment regarding the fact that it's harder and harder and harder to get to the United States. Now people stay uh, from Central America in cities like, like Monterrey. Uh, the migrant shelters there now are accepting people that are just uh, in transit. And they are staying in Monterrey because the economy is, is good and they spread out the world. Yes, uh, I, I was very surprised uh, by, by the comment about these words because it's the same words that are, I mean, this is, this is the same conversation that, that the National Institute of Immigration are having right now. Definitely. The situation is very complicated in Central America. The gangs control important parts, I can say like, like the whole region, but very important parts of the countries. In El Salvador, it's much more extended. In Honduras, it's like, uh, like centered in certain areas. But they are trying to get their life. So definitely, the human factor, the human rights factor, the human factor is very important. They are looking for a better life. They cannot stay in their countries. They, most of them, and I would say the majority of them, have talked hundreds of them. They are people who are looking for jobs. They are criminals, yes, and the component is important. It's, 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 it's difficult, it's dangerous, it is. But these people are desperate. So it looks like we have a really informed audience here. Um, so the question number one on the quiz was, in, in what sector do we have the most apprehensions? Uh, one said San Diego, four said Tucson, five said El Paso, 15 said Laredo, and 20 gave the correct answer of the Rio Grande Valley sector, right here in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, in fact, um, in the last fiscal year, the 2015 fiscal year, uh, about 44% of the apprehensions nationwide happen right here. So this, you're in the, I don't have to tell you, you know this, you're right in the, in the eye of the storm. Unfortunately, I love the work, I love going out there and doing that, but as a Border Patrol agent, nobody wants to be the guy where everybody thinks it's easier to cross. And unfortunately, here we are. We have the most manpower, we're growing, but we can't keep up. And until we get off our butts and do something about it, we're going to continue to see it grow and grow and grow. And that goes into question number two, which was um, how many, uh, are, are there more OTMs other than Mexicans or Mexicans crossing 
uh, in the RGV sector. And that, that ties in totally to what we're saying and, and totally to our project, I might add, uh, because it is, it is OTMs um, that uh, are making up most of the apprehensions in this sector. Um, could you talk about the geographically, is it just because it's closer or is it also that there's a tradition of it? What, what, is, what is the reason for so many of the apprehensions or so many of the Central Americans choosing to come to the Rio Grande Valley? organized crime. I'm not talking about drug traffickers. I'm talking about smugglers. They have, they are very well organized right now. And if you hire a smuggler from your country, I mean, from this country of origin, Guatemala, it's, it's easier for them. It's, it's, I mean, cost effectively again with the economics. So it's shorter. They have their connections here. They have the connections with the cartels. In Reynosa, but particularly Pueblos Negras, and also Matamoros, but Reynosa is a very important spot. So therefore, they. They, they have their connections, they have organized that very well. It's like globalization, capitalism, you know, you become more effective and the ones that are better uh, in doing this, this thing, I mean, you don't have the loneliness number, now it's like a corporation. And that's why it is, it is better for them. They, they earn more money organizing it as well. So Chris, I'll put you on the spot here. The, the Border Patrol Union has endorsed Donald Trump. So given his, his tone and, and often inflammatory rhetoric about Hispanics, hasn't that hurt uh, the cause of the union here in the Rio Grande Valley, which is overwhelmingly Hispanic? You know, um, the Border Patrol obviously is a, a Hispanic organization. Um, I, I don't think it has hurt our cause one bit. You know, we had reached out to, to several different uh, camps. We reached out to the cruise camp. and. I would have reached out all around, and, and nobody would be willing to open up a dialogue with a union. Um, the Trump camp reached out to us and wanted to back us, and we reciprocated. Um, it's, you know, you, you have a lot of unions that are, are, are firmly straight Democrat. Um, Border Patrol agents aren't straight Democrat, straight Republican. We look at what's best for job security, what's best for border security, what's best for our families. And, and that was one of the, the, the reasons why we went that route. Now, you know, there are going to be some that, that disagree with it, uh, you know, whether they're in the Border Patrol or not in the Border Patrol, but then we also had the, the parent union, which AFGE, they endorsed Hillary, you know, and, and our agents weren't for that either. So nothing is, is a 100% thing, but, you know, I think overall we're, we're comfortable with, with where we went. Um, it's not something that we dwell on. We don't, you know, reach out to him too much. If, if he comes around, we talk. You know, you know, it, it is what it is, but, um, you know, we, we think we made the right choice there, and he is the only one that has been outspoken about securing our borders. Granted, he is unpolished, um, very unpolished. I, I think anybody can say that he has a, the political tongue that he needs, but I, I think there's so many people out there that are tired of the political correctness and just want something done. He's, he's kind of like your, your, your drunk uncle at Thanksgiving. You know, he says what everybody's thinking, he just doesn't say it the right way, and you know, so be it. We're, we're proud of, of, of what we did, and, and we'll stand by it. Well, thanks for answering my follow-up without me asking, because I was going to ask if, if the inflammatory rhetoric, no matter what you say about his policy, if, if that wasn't something that you, you'd like to change, and I think that I, I got the right answer, or I got an answer from you on that. Um, let me ask you, uh, Professor, one of the things that I was curious about 
And, and frankly, I, I didn't see this myself, but I heard about it. I heard that it was happening, that some immigrants are coming here because they think there's going to be a wall, that, that Donald Trump is going to get elected president, and that, you know, it's, it's going to be all shut down. Did you, have you, did you run across that at all? And, and any, any comment about what you're hearing from immigrants, did they talk about Donald Trump at all? Not in my case. They are talking about running from the ants. They are talking about their situation, the economic situation. I mean, I don't think that they care about the Trump or the wall. I think that the wall is an issue for the United States because we pay for the wall. And because of these taxes being spent on this wall, I mean, can be spent on education and on other things. So for Mexicans, it's it's like it's an idea. It's it's um, it's something that really matters to politicians, but to regular people, honestly, even even to the migrants, if they are going to be able to make it, the smugglers, the corruption on both sides of the border, they really don't care about Donald Trump or, or, or the wall. I have never, I have you know, I have talked to uh, to some of the migrants that are well educated in politics, and I mean, they all are well educated people. Uh, they don't have the education, but they are hardworking people, many of them. And they understand. They read the newspapers. They, they could read and write. Um, but they don't talk about Donald Trump, to be honest with you. Well, let's talk about the wall for a minute. You know, one of the things that I'm uh, fascinated by is the fact that there's all this discussion about uh, Donald Trump's proposal to build a wall without any discussion about what's happening right now with the walls that already exist. We have walls on about, or fencing, whatever you want to call it, on about one-third of the border. Actually, most of the part where there is not a wall is in Texas, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's private land, and it's, you can't just, you know, you'd have to use eminent domain. It's not the same process if the federal government owns the property. But, Chris, let me ask you, you've obviously been out there in the field. Um, do, do, do walls help? Do physical barriers help? Is there a place for it? Should it be strategic in some places, not have them at all? What's your view on that? You know, they, when they first put up this wall, they put up an 18-foot wall and it looked real nice and pretty. Um, the next day, we had 19-foot ladders everywhere. It got to the point where they had to tell us to stop bringing the ladders into the station because we had so many behind the building that they, we didn't have anywhere to keep them anymore. So they were just telling them to, to destroy the ladders in place. You know, the, the wall is, is it's like a, a tool. It can help, but it's not a be-all, end-all. You have to have the ground sensors. You have to have the technology. You have to have the manpower. Because you can have walls all day long, but if nobody's there to stop them from climbing the wall, then they're going to continue climbing over that wall. So it, 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 can, it can help, um, but right now it's more of a hindrance because they use it as a standalone. So people just go right up and over when we're thinking that it's secure there. So I, I don't think it's uh, it, any one measure is going to fix it all. But it can help to funnel it into some of the, the farmland, but, uh, you know, right now as it stands, it's, it's just really not important. Okay, pretty soon we're going to be taking some audience questions, so, um, you know, be thinking of, of things to ask. Um, and um, I think I have time for one more question here. Um, obviously, we saw the Texas legislature spend $800 million over the biennium on border security. Um, and if you come down here, and if you've been, if you live down here, you you know, you see uh, the Department of Public Safety presence everywhere. Um, uh, I was in Star County, and you, it, you can't go uh, a mile without seeing uh, a DPS car. Um, 
I, I'm interested in a couple of things about that. One is simply your opinion on the overall impact of it. And secondly, um, I, I ran across a gentleman who claims that uh, the Border Patrol and the DPS came into his house and it brought up all kinds of issues for him. He claims they came in without a warrant. I, I wasn't able to verify it or shoot it down one way or the other. Um, but um, I thought it was interesting because there's a totally different mission with the, uh, the Border Patrol. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Chris, but you're, you're, you don't have any jurisdiction over people that are doing domestic things or that are violating the laws of, of, of Texas. That's not your role, and DPS doesn't really have an immigration role, and yet you guys are riding together in patrol cars. So how does that work in terms of your different mission? It's actually a force multiplier, um, whereas I can pull somebody over or do stuff on the immigration side and open the door for the DPS to, if they're creating some type of infraction that's a state law versus a federal law, we're actually broadening the horizons where where if we're working together, we can attack it from two, di two different prongs, whereas if he's riding alone, if, if he sees something that may be an infraction on our end, then we have to get to him and help him out. And if you have us partnered up, we can kind of broaden the spectrum. Um, getting back to DPS being down here in the, the eight, was it eight million, 800 billion, 800 million, what was that number? 800 million. 800 million, you know, that's one thing that, that I'm proud of the state of Texas for doing. Um, the state of Texas seems to do things right. And they're actually helping to secure the border where the federal government won't do it. Um, that's one of the problems we've had as Border Patrol for the longest time is the federal government not stepping up and doing what they're supposed to do, with whether it's securing the border, protecting our agents. In the last couple of days, we've had two or three agents assaulted. And just like normal, the U.S. Attorney won't stand up, won't prosecute it. The guys get hit in the face with a rock. Another guy got pulled into the river from a boat. They tried to drown him. And, and they won't do anything. In the state of Texas, it's a very hard line. It says if you touch our police officers, we are going to go after you with everything we have. And until we as a, as a agency start protecting our agents, they're going to continue to get abused out there. If you have a question for us, you want to shoot it to us on social media, you can tweet. Uh, use the hashtag TripTalk. Um, I assume on Facebook as well. I'm not sure. Um, but um, let me ask you about that. What, what have you, you live, you live here, you live on the border. What, what have you seen, um, and what is the result of all this state presence? That's right, and that's very interesting. Um, as I said in one of my comments, okay, more people are trying to get through here, more apprehensions take place here. People are doing their work here, but people are still coming. And there is like, like a request for more resources. But apparently, things are not working. People are are being arrested, but more people are, are being apprehended, but more people are trying to come here. So why would we want policies that reinforce bad policies? And as I said, the same thing. Let's focus on the on, on the on the demand, not on the supply. I think that would be a very important thing to do. Why to have more freedom of rights? Why to have so many DPS? I mean, DPS is showing, and I have uh, I have read their reports uh, a year after year since the year 2009 that I came here. 2010, sorry, I came here 2009, and they report an increase in the number of crimes, regular crimes, which is what they report, and they and they allege that this is this, this is this is because migrants are are are, are crossing through there, criminal migrants. So why they are they are looking for more money if their policies are fail according to their numbers? That's very important to think about. Okay, 
again, your hashtag is Trip Talk, and yes, you can do it on Facebook, uh, and I know that because I have a reader question right here from Angela Lee on Facebook, and she says, when kids come across the border, meaning unaccompanied minors, where do they go? Do they stay in Texas or go somewhere else? I'm going to let you take a crack at this, Chris. Well, a lot of these kids that, that come across uh, by themselves will have uh, their number written on them in Sharpie, usually on a shirt, or they'll, if they're a little older, they'll have it in, uh, in their pocket somewhere, and they get reunited with their parents who are here illegally already and just sent for them to come over. So they, they get reunited with their parents, which to me is, is baffling because I have an eight-year-old boy, and if I put him on a bus to see his Uncle Joe in Chicago by himself, I'd be arrested before he hit the next stop. But here we got a kid that's riding on top of a train across three countries, and we're, and it's not the child's fault by, by no stretch of the imagination, but why would we give this child back to this parent that puts this child in that type of danger? And how many of those children don't make that trip because they were put in that type of danger? You know, this is one of the things that we encountered in El Salvador was that the kids who are successful who make it here often have a smuggler. The, the ones that we found in the, in the shelters, those are the ones who don't have a smuggler. And they end up usually not being successful, although if they're kids and they can actually make it to the border, get past the cartels, get past the people who are trying to shake them down, and can actually get across the border, then they can turn themselves in as well. Um, but but talk about the kids, what happens to them after they get here. Uh, well, and, and you're right, you're right, Jay. Uh, the people that we are seeing, and that's why I'm talking about organized crime. It's organized. And the people who you see, the unaccompanied minors, is because they come with a smuggler. When they come here, and they, they because they have to be, they need to wait for, for the... The, and some of them have asylum petitions, some of them want to reunite with their families. They go to many places. But some of them are in, in, in centers where they uh, allegedly are also waiting for returning to their, to their countries. So there are a lot of, of different uh, stories about the different situation of some kids. So it's difficult to generalize where they end up being. Uh, some of them are waiting for certain asylum reunite with their families and their policies that were, you know, taken taken back and, and you know, there are many, uh, there, there are different circumstances, but many of them are being returned to their families. Not all of them stay here and reunite with their families and they just forget about their, their process, their judicial process. They, they are, they are returned to we have another question from Margie Harris on Facebook. How can we have a secure border but also be humane about the border? Is there a balance? You know, I, I think in order to get it started, we, we need to secure it. Um, the, the first aspect of anything is, is shutting off the source. We need to secure it, and then if there's going to be some type of immigration reform, then that needs to take place. You can't have the immigration reform kick in while you still have people pouring in because then we're, we're compounding and then we're going to need another immigration reform and then five years later another one. So something needs to be secured before you can add to it. And it can be humane. You, you know, I, I've told people for years, you know, Border Patrol agents are the, it's the biggest humanitarian organization out there. We, we do more for the the people that are coming across and anybody else ever will. Um, but in order for us to, to get this done, we need to secure it because if not, we're, we're, we're just going to be chasing it all the way around. And I think there is a balance, and I think it can be done, 
but until we get the political will and the determination to, to stop doing this on party lines, it'll never happen. I think we have time for uh, at least one or two more questions, but uh, does any, anyone have a question? Just stand up. Um, yeah, ma'am, go ahead. Just speak in your outside voice so I can hear you. Employers, also the fact that um, you know what would happen um, if we had comprehensive immigration reform and that we, there weren't walls and people, you know, people, which which sort of gives it people an incentive to stay here rather than than go and come back. Because as we all know, before 9/11, we had sort of an informal guest worker program where people just sort of came back and forth. But but what is your position, basically, Chris, on comprehensive immigration reform and, and, and you know? Having a like that. Well, well, first off, you have to set the parameters. The parameters have to be set where people are going to have to come in and they're going to have to get fingerprinted, but we're going to have to get the home country also to let us know if there's criminal history in their home country. Because if, if you come over here and commit no crimes, but yet you killed 14 people in, back home, well, we probably don't need you anyway. Um, so we need to set those, those parameters. We need to get everybody in there and, and get them situated so that once they're here, um, we know we have productive members of society. You know, we have enough people, whether they're illegal or legal or U.S. citizens, that don't contribute. We don't need to bring any more in. So if people are, are willing and they're not criminal aliens, um, they don't have a criminal history, by all means, um, bring them in. Um, and what was the, the other half of that question? I know there was a... Employer sanctions. Oh. Should, should there be more done against employers who are hiring? You know, I, I think there should. I think that has been the, the most overlooked piece of the puzzle. You look at some of these, like for instance, Tyson Foods are, is probably one of the biggest hire, hirers of illegal aliens, but yet nobody does anything to them. There's so many companies out there that hire these people and they treat them terrible, and if they complain or they get hurt or they get pregnant, they fire them. Um, and, and they have no, no recourse. And, and I think that's one thing that really needs to be taken into consideration because just like with the drug problem, if there's, if there's a, a demand then the supply will always be there. And until we, we tackle that, that supply and demand issue, we're, we're going to continue just to be spinning our wheels because they'll continue to come because there's somewhere for them to go. All right, let me give the professor a chance to, to talk about employer sanctions and the lack thereof and what that does uh, just very quickly. And then we got time for one more question that we got on Twitter. Well, I, I think I have said, uh, and I have mentioned the importance of uh, focusing on, on, those, on those policies. It's, it's very important, and comprehensive immigration reform, I think that very few people have really read the proposals that were advanced by the Republicans, not the, the Democrats, and they worked together to, to produce the document that Obama is, is, is putting forward right now, but it started much earlier. And, and of course, it's not, 
it's, it's, really, it's really a comprehensive immigration reform uh, that needs to be strengthened in the part of the employers. But uh, like the flexibility, even, even the opportunity to come back and forth and uh, controlling who's here and you know, with these with this temporary jobs, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to improve a lot of the situation. And this is where we can focus on the bad guys. If you, if, if you, if you control the, how, how the good guys can be here, and how can they come, go back to their countries? They, they would prefer to be in their countries where they have their families, where they have their connections. That's what Mexicans did. And now this is like so costly. They stay in Mexico. Not, not, not everyone. And allow me to give a little context. In the last uh, comprehensive immigration reform attempt, there was a provision that would have required uh, e verify, which is a, an electronic uh, verification of employment. Uh, it's 99.7% accurate. I think I'm right on that. It may be 99.3, but it's ex extremely accurate. Um, the Texas legislature decided not to uh, go forward with a mandatory E-Verify bill. Uh, there is a mandatory E-Verify bill in, uh, in Arizona, and there was a very interesting article in the Wall Street Journal about the impact of it. And, and it, it, it basically showed that there were good things and bad things. It, you know, Like everything else in this, it wasn't black or white, but it's a very interesting article, um, and I, I recommend it to you. One last question. This is from Ruben on Twitter. How would you describe the morale of the U.S. Border Patrol right now? Uh, you know, the, U, the morale of the U.S. Border Patrol right now is in the toilet. Um, I, I've never seen a lower morale of, of our agents since I've been in the patrol. Um, you just have... With this catch and release program, it, it has just—it's it, brought it to an all-time low. Um, that doesn't mean our agents don't go out there and work hard every day. They go out there, they work hard, complain a little bit, and then they come home. But but the morale right now is is just—you know—with with some of the changes we've had, and uh, you know, mainly the catch and release program, we we've turned into babysitters, we've turned into wet nurses, and, and we're not allowed to go out there and do what we signed up to do. Okay, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Please give uh, the panel here a round of applause. Great, great discussion. Um, I'm sorry we couldn't screen the movie. We did have some uh, technical difficulties with that. But please look it up. Go on YouTube. Look for uh, Life on the Line, Texas Tribune. You can also find it uh, on our Facebook page. Just Google it. You'll find it. I'm very proud of this movie. Uh, we're going to have so much more to come. Check out our Bordering on Insecurity project. Thanks, everybody, for coming.